What a uh, great refrain to come to the Father in prayer. So let me pray for us. Jesus, um, please come. Come soon. That is uh, a clear promise in, in your scriptures and, and what you said personally as you walked here on the earth that, that uh, you're coming back again to restore us to holy kingdom, Lord. And I thank you for that, uh, that, that glorious promise that we can hold tight to, that one day, no matter how bad things get here, we will be reunited with you. Help that to be more than just a, a thought in our minds, but help that to become ingrained in our hearts, Lord. And Father, I, I, I pray for some of the other refrains that we heard uh, this morning. How, how high and wide and deep is your love for us. That is uh, unimaginable, Lord. And uh, again, help that to be more than just head knowledge, but heart knowledge that will carry us through so many things to know, to know in our gut, to know in our soul that, that you love us more than we can ever imagine as we walk through this, this world, the, the, the difficulties, the sin, the abuse, all the things that Satan is, desires to throw at us. For us to be able to know how much you love us is just so comforting and reassuring. Father, may we all know that. May we all rest in that. And Father, I, I pray for our time this morning. And uh, hopefully as we have communed with you through our song and our prayers that, that uh, you are ministering to us even as we sit here this morning. And I pray for the feeble words that, that I am attempting to share with the folks here, that, Father, you would take these words and that you would empower them and you would take the feeble words and transform them into great and mighty words that can convict our hearts of the need of a Savior, of a need to live a life that glorifies you. Father, may our hearts all be attuned and open to receiving a very special message from you. And Father, I pray particularly for our leaders on a national level, particularly our president and the leaders in, in Congress as they, what appears to be battling out um, budget, budget issues and it just seems like it's a hopeless cause. But, uh, Father, if these men and women would bow down and seek your face, seek your knowledge and your wisdom, these things can be resolved. I pray that our leaders would become men and women like this. Father, I just help, I just pray that you would help them and they would be open and receptive to you. In Christ's very powerful name I pray, amen. Well, obviously, uh, Pastor Brad's not here this morning. Um, I thought I knew where he was going to be, but in, in order for him to do that, he needed something from me, and since he didn't come and get it, he's not doing that. So I heard, I heard some, some rumors. I mean, it's probably not good to share rumors, but um, since you won't 
repeated, and especially repeated to, to Pastor Brad. Um, I'll share it anyway. So, um, you know, I've heard uh, Pastor Brad, you know, preach on an entire book of the Bible and do a marvelous job at, him, at it. I've heard him take a chapter of the Bible and, and, and do likewise, and, and then take his normal uh, um, style and take groups of, of passages and, and, and preach on it. And he, he's even preached on a, a word or two. But I understand that he's needing extra time to, to, um, to um, go into new frontiers on, on his message that's going to be coming up, where he wants to take one syllable of a word. And, uh, you know, as, if you have a whole lot of data to share, it's real easy to preach on that. But as you narrow it down and further and further, it, it gets more difficult. So, but, you know, I, I don't know where I heard that from. It was probably from Pastor Brian or Pastor Shane or something like that. So it didn't, it didn't come from me. So please, please don't say that to him. So um, I, um, talking to uh, folks after the, the first service and... and uh, Hopefully, I've achieved my goal. Is that, I mean, he's doing such a marvelous job through through Romans. I, I've never been to a seminary, a seminary, but I would imagine the the course level that we're getting through Romans is is of that caliber and, and of that depth. And it's it's really appreciative of of the work that he he's putting into that. And what I'm doing today is going to be where you can kind of sit back and relax because I'm going to be where he's talking about the theology and the basis of our faith, I'm going to be looking at the practical and putting in, okay, now that you believe this stuff, this is some stuff that we should be doing, you know, the practical day-to-day experiences that, that we all deal with. And no better book is a, a book of practical issues than the book of James. So we're going to be looking at the first 12 uh, verses of chapter 1 in James. So a major, a major theme of the Bible describe, is a description of two paths. One is a path of life. Another one is a path of death. The path of death is one that all mankind is, at least for some, initially on. For some, this path, even as you know, bad as it sounds, for some, this path can be a, a marvelous adventure full of riches, pleasures, and happiness. And for others, it can be the opposite extreme. It can be full of hardships, disappointments, loneliness, to name just a few. Each who who are on this path, no matter from one extreme to the other, they all have one thing in common, that when they end their walk on that path, they're going to end up in death. No matter if you walk it for 95 years or misfortune of just a few days, everyone will, will end in death. The second path, the path of, of life, mankind is, is blocked by a barricade from, from entering into it. It's impossible to travel on, on the path of life except by one and only one means, and that's through a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, when people are, are introduced to this second, second path of life, Christians like you and I, and I'm speaking in generic terms, Christians and even the church uh, often make a, a crucial mistake in, in telling people about this, this path of life. We paint the picture 
that the walk down the path of life will be as glorious as the final destination, heaven. And it's just not so. We often forget to mention, as well as remembering it ourselves, that this gift of faith that saved us will continually be put to test by trials and temptations as we walk down this path. John John Bunyan uh, portrays this vividly in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, that this path is laden with hardship, struggles, and sufferings. The path swarms with persecutors, tempters, and discouragers. But here's the bright part of it. But the Lord Jesus Christ accompanies its travelers, bearing our burdens and providing his Holy Spirit to reinvigorate our weak steps. The path of life, though narrow and difficult, leads to a destination that makes all the hazards, all the pitfalls and setbacks along the journey well worth it. My goal this morning is to talk about these these trials that all of you who are truly born again encounter what they are, and, and why does God bring them into our lives. And as I said earlier, one of the best teachings on trials is from the book of James, specifically verses 1 through 12. Let me give you a little background on, on James. It's written by, obviously, by James. He was the brother of, of Jesus, or to be more theologically correct, the half-brother of Jesus, and give yourself a little test on why, why he's considered the half-brother of, of Jesus. Uh, James is writing to, to Jews that have converted to, to Christianity. And now, because of this, they have been scattered, they have been dispersed throughout the area around the Mediterranean Sea. The theme of James is a, is a faith that is real, works practically in one's life, or to be specific to our passage this morning, a faith that is real works practically through our, our trials. So let me read verses 1 through 12 for us. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So verse 1 contains greetings to the fellow dispersed Jews who are followers of Jesus Christ. These fellow Christians have two things going against them. First, 
by being Jews, they are despised by the Romans whose land they now, they now, they now find themselves living in. And since they have uh, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and moved away from Judaism, they are now considered outcasts by their fellow Jews. Verse 2 begins with an imperative. It says, consider it pure joy. An imperative is like a command whenever you face a trial. James is writing to these beat-up brothers and sisters, and he is saying, consider it pure joy. Now, is James crazy? Is he insensitive to what's going on with these folks? What does this command, what does his command really mean? First, let's look at what it doesn't mean. James is not ordering an all-encompassed joyful emotion during severe trials, nor is he demanding that his readers must enjoy their trials or that trials are joyful. James knew, as did other writers of the, of the New Testament and Old Testament as well, for example, as we find in Hebrews, that no trial seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. James knew this full well. So James was not commanding that we sing out in joy upon hearing that our career position of 20 years has been eliminated or that we just heard that our niece now has just been diagnosed with leukemia or I've just found out my spouse is having an affair on me. One commentator describes very well what James is meaning here. Let me read this. James is commanding the conscious embrace of a Christian understanding of life which brings joy into the trials that come because of our Christianity. Let me repeat that. James is commanding the conscience embrace. Conscious embrace means our mind, with our mind, that we mentally embrace something from Christian understanding, something that we know from our Christian faith. So in order to have joy, James is saying we need to embrace this with our mind, knowledge that we have that's found in, in Christianity. And, and, and from our understanding of life, which brings joy into the trials that, become, that come because of our Christianity. James is saying, consider it pure joy, which means to make a deliberate and careful decision to experience joy, even in times of trouble. Is this possible? Do we, do we see people doing this? Yes, and we see it clearly in Scripture. A few examples, Paul told the Corinthian church, in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. In Acts 5, the Sanhedrin had called all the apostles in and had them flogged for what they were doing concerning sharing about Jesus being the Messiah. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of the sufferings and disgrace for the name of Jesus. Further on in Acts, Acts 16, Paul and Silas had been severely flogged and being in intense pain, they were in prison, in prison and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now we're going to get back to how we garner this joy out of our trials, but in, in verse 2, we also see, consider it pure joy, my brothers, uh, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Some like to think that it says, consider pure joy if you encounter trials. But what does it say? Whenever you encounter trials. 
you know, he, he's saying here that such trials are part of every believer's life. If you're on the path of life, if your faith is real, you will experience trials. If not, I would question, and you should question as well, your, what, what your real faith is. So let's get back to this. How do we cultivate joy during our trials? Where does it come from? Verses 3 through 4 gives us three sources for this joy. Let me read this. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what's the first one? The first one is by knowing. You see that in there? By knowing. What was our, our definition that the commentator gave us earlier? By having, a Christ, by having an understanding of Christian principles, that, bring, is, that is what brings joy. Here James is saying that by knowing, um, it's a, again, it's a conscious embrace of a Christian understanding. You can't be joyful about something that you don't understand. Um, and, and just going on here, that he, he stresses you know, a fact of knowing that is so important here about being able to garner joy out of our trials. And if you don't understand basic Christian teachings about how much God loves you, how he desires to walk with you and carry your burdens during your trials, that he, and that he has a greater purpose for us in our trials and how he works overall in our lives, you will never be able to bring joy during trials. And the only way, the only way we can learn this stuff that we can get this understanding, that we can know this, is through this book here, this book. This is why we stress over and over again, and we encourage people to get involved in Bible studies, and, and we preach from the Scriptures here, because we believe this is the source of life, and the source of solution for our trials is found in God's holy word. Second, second way to garner joy out of our trials is that next we need to know or understand that the testing of our faith develops what? Develops perseverance. So what is perseverance? It's staying power. It's fortitude. It's toughness. The testing of your faith produces toughness. Here's how perseverance works. We develop toughness or fortitude by repeatedly being tested and prevailing. The more tests we pass, the tougher we become. Just as a boxer engages in bout after bout, he toughens and becomes wiser and stronger. After a time, he develops such fortitude, perseverance, and staying power that he can take on many different types of challengers because he has this ability from, his being, from being tested. There's no way a fighter or, or any of us can develop toughness without being tested. The endurance and fortitude of the men and women of the Bible and those among us today did not come about overnight by magic, but came about by testing from experiencing life's trials. What do so many of us do when we encounter trials? We run, we cry, why me, where's God? I thought with my salvation came a sugar daddy who was going to take care of all my problems. Poor me. 
But instead, we need to do as Paul declares in Romans 5.3. But we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces, produces perseverance. Okay, so enabled to consciously embrace joy during our trials, first we got to know what and how God works in our lives. We, we need to know that. We need to know that God is at work in our lives. Secondly, we need to know that trials develop perseverance. And thirdly, we know that, that once we begin persevering through our trials, developing toughness, guess what happens next? We start maturing in our faith. We, com- be- we become complete, not lacking in anything. Now, many people feel that, that trials bring about maturity. No, trials do not bring about maturity. They have nothing to do with it. Trials bring about perseverance, and when we persevere, the perseverance brings about the maturity and the completeness in our lives. Do you ever wonder why God may not be at work in your life? Why you seem to be lacking in your life compared to others you see around you and you read in the scriptures? Could it be in, in how you handle the trials that, that come your way? Are you joyful? Are you intentionally embracing your trials with understanding that, that God is at work in your life and that good things, our maturity will come from it if you pers- persevere? These are good questions. This is a good question you need to be asking yourself and looking at yourself in the mirror as you come up with an answer there. There's even more help for us, for our trials. When a person encounters a trial, I would say many of us are asking one of the following questions. Again, why me? Why now? I don't understand. Why does this keep happening to me? Instead, how many of us are asking, Lord, I need wisdom. Give me some wisdom, some understanding of you how you want me to react to this trial, how you want me to react to your people and and to life. And according to verse 5, this is exactly what we are supposed to do. Let me read verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. There's a reason why this is right in smack dab in the middle of of a dialogue on trials. We need wisdom if we are going to persevere in our trials. Let him ask God is the same type of imperative as the imperative in verse 2 where James says, consider it all joy. So we have the first imperative, the first command to consider it all joy, and now it's followed by let him ask God for wisdom. Again, if you're going to persevere in your trials, you need God's wisdom in order to do this. How much wisdom will God give us? How much wisdom is he willing to give you? The passage says he wants to give it to us generously. The little uh, reading of that is, let him ask the constantly giving God. A great word picture of this is, God is like a pitcher tilted towards his children, just waiting to pour wisdom over the trial-parched landscape of of our lives. And if they will only do what? 
if they only do what? If they will only ask God for wisdom. Verse 5 also tells us something else about our God and how he dispenses his wisdom to his children. What else are you seeing here on how he wants to give us wisdom? He gives generously without finding any fault. He's going to give us wisdom without putting us down or finding fault. Ask yourselves, why don't we, why don't I pursue more wisdom in my life? The trials of many kinds in verse 2, where it says the trials of many kinds, you know what? They're nothing more than gigantic opportunities to become a wise person. This is a no-lose opportunity that God gives to each one of us. We need to stop and 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 make a, a covenant with God by his grace that we will start asking God for wisdom. I mean, I'm saying this to myself as well. You know, I'm constantly going into these things, fretting, worrying about how to solve it, but I'm not stopping and asking God. So try to emblazon that in your mind to stop and ask God for wisdom. Now, are there any conditions or on receiving this wisdom from God? Yeah, there is one, verse 6 and 8. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. If you ask for wisdom with doubting, this passage says that God is not going to give you wisdom. But let's, let's look at this a little closer and let's don't jump to conclusions. We all have doubts. I know I do. Uh, Abraham and Moses clearly had doubts. There are numerous accounts through the life of Christ where he encountered people who had doubts and he dealt with them very graciously and ministered to, to them, in most cases, back to health. But a double-minded person is described as where there should be one thought, one goal, one attitude and devotion. Instead, we find two competing thoughts. Consequently, a, a double-minded person is one who wants his will, my will, and I want God's will both at the same time. Those two are in tremendous conflict if that's going on in your life. That kind, that's the kind of person that is in, unstable in everything he does, and God is not going to honor that person with his wisdom. Verses 9 through 11 is a, a, a fascinating description of trials that the poor and the wealthy endure. Um, if, I'm imbi- if I am invited back again, I'll, I'm going to share about that passage my intent was to, to just focus on 9 through 11, but I knew I had to set up the context of the passage 1 through 12 because this whole passage is, is about trials. And so the time is taking to set up the context. We would be here into the dinner time to, do, to take care of both. So I, I will cover that at, at another time. You need to ask Pastor Brad to invite me back if you want to hear. But I'll say one thing to whet your appetite. 
I believe, and Scripture, I believe, clearly says that, the wealthy endure far more trials than does the poor people. I'm sure many of you disagree with that. I'm sure some of you who consider yourself poor are saying, hey, as far as I'm concerned, bring it on. I'll take their money and I'll take their trials from them. And I'm sure any of you who are wealthy here are saying, well, thank you very much, preacher man, but I'll do very well, thank you, with my trials and I'll just keep my money. But in any case, I believe the wealthy endure far more trials and it's how you look at it that's important. If you just look at it at the way um, the world looks at it, maybe not. But if you're looking at it from a different perspective, I believe it's clear that the wealthy endure far more in trials than do the poor. Moving on to and uh, concluding with verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. The one who stands up under the weight of trials with joy, persevering to, to maturity, according to this passage, will be blessed. The word blessed means genuinely happy. The reward we receive in heaven is the crown of life, and without denying or minimizing this future reward in store for those who endure trials, there is a temporal reward here on earth. Their reward, this reward in this life, is maturity, lacking in nothing, wisdom and insight into God's purposeful plan. This is real life and is a life that will give us a taste of heaven and the crown of life that follows. This can be yours. It is not limited to a few selected super-Christians, but for every Christian. This book is written to a group of Jewish Christians who have been kicked out of their country, kicked out of their culture, and spread around the Mediterranean Sea. And James is writing to them with this expectation that this is to be their lot in life, to, to endure trials, enjoy by persevering and persevering to maturity and completeness and not lacking in anything. Wisdom and God's strength is yours for the asking, to help you with your trials that you can persevere to maturity and not lacking in anything. Uh, Ash and your team can come up, but we're going to close with a, a famous hymn. And before we sing this hymn, I, I want to tell you about the author of the song, and what he was enduring when he wrote it. I believe it will cement a lot of what has been said this morning. The song is, It Is Well With My Soul. We have sung it here before, and the first time I heard we sing, I said, man, we need, the people need to hear the history of this song. It was written by a Chicago lawyer and real estate tycoon named Horatio Spafford during the late 18th century. He was a Christian man, and in addition to his professional work and his investments, he was very much involved in the ministry of, of a, both his friend, someone he supported, and he worked alongside of the famous preacher and evangelist D.L. Moody. He and his family led an idyllic life until 1870. That year, in 1870, he lost his only son in death to scarlet fever. 
1871 was the year of the famous but tragic Great Chicago Fire. Mr. Spafford lost every piece of his properties in that fire. He was financially ruined. In 1873, he and his family had planned to join D.L. Moody for an evangel evangelical <laughs> uh, crusade in Great Britain. They traveled to New York to embark on their voyage to Great Britain when Mr. Spafford was suddenly and urgently called back to his law practice in Chicago. Not to cut his family's trip short, he went ahead and put his wife and four daughters on the ship so that they could travel on to Great Britain, and he returned to Chicago, planning to rejoin them shortly. But it was interrupted when he received a telegram from his wife stating two tragic words. These tragic words were, saved alone. The ship carrying his family collided with another ship far out to sea. The ship sank in 12 minutes, taking 226 people to their graves. As Mrs. Bafford stood bravely on the deck with her daughters, Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanada clinging desperately to her, her last memory had been of her baby Tanada being violently torn from her arms by the force of the rushing water from the seeking vessel. It was only by a miracle that saved her from certain death. Upon hearing the terrible news, Mr. Spafford boarded the next ship to be with his bereaved wife. And during the voyage, the captain of the ship knew about his grieving passenger and advised him that at around 9 p.m. that evening, their ship would be in the general vicinity of where the earlier ship had gone down. So standing on the deck of that ship on that cold November night, looking over the endless ocean, thinking of his four daughters, three miles down on the ocean floor, he penned the words to the song that we are going about to sing. 